Okay, Stacy, this one's for you. I am the interim executive director of a small nonprofit. What is the best way to approach a gossiping, complaining staff of four since I'm not going to be in this position for the long haul? I'm wondering if there are any limitations or boundaries to your interim role. So some interim positions, executive director positions are given kind of carte blanche to do whatever needs to be done. And others have really tight boundaries that the board puts on that position of, of what can be or can't be done, not wanting to upset the apple cart. So I guess my first question is wondering if that's been communicated in any way, um, just so you're kind of in alignment with what the board's thinking. And, and then I think assuming that you have the authority to address situations like this um, and just to kind of keep the ship running and trying to clean it up as best you can before the new executive director gets there, I'm thinking that a, a meeting um, with, with the team to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, change and change is uncomfortable and sort of start with that. But then I would kind of lead it into what do you think makes a good workplace and a good, a good work culture and, and having that conversation and seeing what they say. Um, and then perhaps, um, you know, listing it out, right? Like what are some of the core values that like we want in this change period of change? Like what are the kind of the core values we want to uphold as like, a healthy work culture. And I would, I would brainstorm it with them. And then, I mean, if you really want to be direct, I would then say, you know, that's not being reflected right now in our behavior. So, so what are we going to do to change that? Or like, are we going to hold ourselves accountable to this? So, so I, I honestly think it needs to be a little bit of discussion instead of just coming down on them, kind of addressing that change is uncomfortable, but also giving them a process to think through what kind of you know, culture they want to work in, especially during this transition period, and then getting agreement that everyone's going to hold each other accountable. And of course, then if they don't abide by that or the gossiping and the garbage, you know, the silliness continues, then then you start going down the HR path of verbal warnings and written warnings and all that. But but I think first sort of addressing that elephant in the room is important. It makes me like wonder if it's like the substitute teacher effect, right? Because like how much of it does the interim part, like how much does that bring to it? Is it, is it that because you're interim, you feel like you don't necessarily have the authority to make any long-term plans for these people and that you just kind of want to get by and maybe, maybe it's a little bit of just like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat or get into nasty, sticky situations because I'm not going to be here that long. That feels like that might be a little piece of the question. Um, but, but for a staff of four to be gossiping and complaining, like who are they gossiping and complaining about each other? Like there aren't that many people. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like maybe they're just, maybe they're just bad employees. Cause, cause the, you, you got to wonder what the issue is. Like what are, what's the, why are they upset? Like, is it, are they complaining about how it used to be? Because that should be water under the bridge at this point, right? That should be the the old, I'm the new ED, the old ED is gone. So I don't know why you're still complaining about that. That seems to be a, a waste of everyone's time. So maybe, maybe we all just need to go um, have some cocktails when that's a, a thing you're allowed to do again and just like hash it out and get it out of everybody's system. And so we can have a fresh start. I would think that you would be if there's an interim position and not knowing how it happened, but I'm going to guess it was 
Um, if there's gossip, I mean, like if it was a planned transition or something and an interim is an intentional step in between leaders, that would be one thing. And I think that that might be less filled with gossip. But like if it was something where that the former ED and we don't know this, right, but the former ED got let go or something really, you know, or just left um, whatever happened in this interim got put in. I mean, I could see where there'd be gossip, even though it's a small team, but it'd be like, oh God, what's going on here? We lost our leader. Like, who's this new person? Are we going to be on the chopping block? I mean, I think it's probably filled with a lot of uncertainty, not knowing the specific circumstance. So, so really just addressing it which kind of goes back to that authority question, like how much authority do have you been given as the interim and do you want to take on? Um, I mean, I've seen organizations where they bring in an interim and truly that interim is there to kind of be that transition turnaround expert to get things, the ship righted, make all those hard decisions, clean up bad staff, clean up all the stuff that's a mess. So the new ED comes in fresh and like without a big headache. So I don't know if it's that situation or if it's really just people feeling uncomfortable and thinking they can get away with it. But I definitely think it's got to stop because good grief, like that's just toxic and unhealthy and they need to be doing their work. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, yeah, and that's a good point, too, about the that everybody's because there's a leadership transition, people are feeling unsettled, probably. And and for this group, that that feeling of being unsettled is is manifesting itself in in poor employee behaviors. So so yeah. So like, I mean, I don't know. Am I I as as much as I pretend to be the opposite, I'm probably I'm the big softy that's going to let people come into my office and complain to me all day. I might not do anything about it, but but I'm I would definitely listen and see if I can figure out if there's some sort of common theme. And if it is something to do with just the uncertainty of the viability of the organization, like, you know, the ED left and they were doing such a great job and we don't know why. And now we don't know if the organization is coming apart and we are all going to get fired. And like, that's, that's not a, that, that's something that you should be able to address just by saying like, look, the, the organization is, it, we've got new leadership. We may have new leadership again. And then four weeks or six months or whatever after the interim period is over. So it's up to us to make sure that we can fix all the stuff we can fix and then and then move on from there and let the past be the past. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Today's episode is sponsored by the HR Collaborative. The HR Collaborative was formed to help build nonprofit strengths through improved human resources. It provides professional development opportunities, networking, and sharing of best practices on HR issues faced by nonprofit organizations. The Collaborative meets bi-monthly. Membership is free and open to anyone who works for a nonprofit and has HR responsibilities. For more information or to attend an upcoming meeting, visit their website at www.hrcollaborativelv.org. Check out the Nonprofit Everything show notes for more information. Hey, everybody. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am really excited to share today's guest and all of his wisdom uh, with you. And welcome, Brad. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. So we've got Brad Stiff. And um, I've known Brad for years. Gosh, he's been just sort of a a fundraising staple in our community, uh, quite the expert on a variety of topics related to fundraising and sort of the thought and strategy behind it. Um, Brad is a certified fundraising executive, so has that credential and also another credential, CSPG. What does that stand for, Brad? That's Certified Specialist in Planned Giving. That's uh, something that is, um, uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, an acronym that most people are familiar with. So it basically is just the same thing as a CFRE, but it's in planned giving. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I figured, um, you know, when I see all these initials behind your name, I know that, that <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, Brad has his own company, Philanthropy Development Associates. So Brad, I want to give you just a moment before we kick this off with a little bit of background on you and your company. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, unexpected. Uh, <laughs> I've been here since 1994. My wife and I, Allison, moved here uh, when we were expecting our first child. Prior to that, uh, we were consultants with one of the largest um, campaign consulting firms in the nation. And we were going from city to city, directing major capital campaigns for organizations, but we didn't really want to drag a child around that way. So we moved here in 1994. I became the executive director of Nevada Ballet Theater. And after five years there and taking that organization to uh, wonderful new heights, I decided to hang up my own shingle here in Las Vegas and uh, start consulting again. So we've been doing this for quite a long time. We've been lucky enough to work with some fantastic people, uh, both here in Southern Nevada and all across the nation. We're trying to focus more on our own community now. You know, you get to a point where you're like, you know, I really just want to do stuff for my own town. And so Absolutely. that's what we're doing now. And we focus primarily on uh, major gifts, plan giving, and capital campaigns, planning studies, and, and so on. Uh, although we are well-versed in all of those, uh, you know, all of the uh, fundraising avenues, we, we just have to focus on our, our things that we do best, things that we like to do the most. I love it. I love it. Very wise. And uh, I'm sure all of those words, plan giving, major gifts, all of that stuff perked up the ears of our listeners because I know <laughs> many have questions on it. And that's what leads us to today's conversation. So we actually had uh, someone someone share with us that they were really sort of grappling with the extent of the need of donor wealth screening. So let me read you the actual question and then let's have a conversation about it. Uh, right. So question is, I'm on the board of an organization that has been around a while and has a very large donor database. The staff has recently paid to put it through a wealth screen and now the consultant wants them to put it through another screen to see which donors have an interest in our mission. Can't we just assume that already since they've made a donation to us, or am I missing something? Hmm, okay. Um, first, um, I guess we can answer the question. The individual that's 
asking this is correct in their assumption that the organization's past donors have already, in fact, shown an interest at some level, big or small, in their mission. But a couple of things I'm hearing in the question, a couple of things could be going on here that might cause some confusion. So why don't we break up the question and examine what we're working with and what might be happening here? Sounds great. First, the individual says they have a very large donor database, donor quote unquote. Um, just how large is the database? Well, most search services cost anywhere from three cents to six cents per record screened. And the larger the batch being screened, of course, the lower they're gonna charge you per record. And the proposed cost in the question here is $40,000. So it's, it's a big database. And if we divide that by three cents per record, we're talking about anywhere from a million to 1.3 million uh, as far as the database or the batch that's going to be screened or proposed to be screened. This is huge. Um, I want to work with this organization. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. Now, I'm sure so you do. And actually, let me let me uh, ask you to pause for a minute, Brad. So I do want to clarify for um, our listeners. I, I did not read. There was a piece of, of this question in parentheses that Brad had seen, but that I forgot to read when I just mentioned this. But but they did talk about it's basically a $40,000 cost, which is where Brad got that $40,000 from. So, okay, I just wanted to clarify that. Let's let's move on, Brad. Got it. So, yeah, my ears perk up when I see, wow, 40,000. Okay, that's a lot, that's a huge database. And you can do some uh, reverse analytics to try and figure out, okay, how big is this database? This is huge. Now, the second thing is the organization said that they've already screened the database. And we don't know if that initial screen was the entire database or if it was just donors. And I'm thinking it might just be donors. Why do I say that? Um, a consultant wants to put the, the entire database through another screening. Well, the big reputable search firms, they know what they're doing. And they're probably not going to make that kind of a mistake where they have to screen the entire database again. So I'm thinking maybe just the donors that they already have that to the organization were screened, wealth screened, which is what was said in the, the question. And perhaps the other uh, portion is non-donors. So we have to ask ourselves, first, did they screen the entire database on the first run? Um, if so, that firm that's handling all of those, all that search should have conducted all the screening needed on that first pass, and there should be no reason to do a second pass. Um, the the second thing I wanted to, to mention when it perked up my ears again was the proposed second screening, uh, as it was indicated in the question, is to see which donors have an interest in the organization's mission. And so um, this is another reason why I'm guessing the first screen was for donors and wealth to find out who are the major donors in their big haystack. Where, where's the needle, the, the couple of needles in the haystack that can bring them a lot of uh, support. And the second screening is probably the non-donors, uh, and they're looking for affinity and propensity to give to their organization. So I guess the answer overall is you might be missing something. So I think the board member might need to ask the question um, of the staff, is there a segmentation that's been going on and the first screen was donors and the second screen is non-donors? You know, it's I, this strikes me as that that 
infamous game of telephone, right? Where each person, <laughs> <laughs> right, that the message passes to, it, there's a little detail that gets left out or added or whatever the case may be. And so because this was a board member who asked this question, my sense is, is that that board member probably may not have all of the facts or, um, you know, or have even re- recognized that there's these different sort of types of screening, layers of screening, populations to screen, right? So there, there could just be, a, it, this could just be as simple as asking a few clarifying questions, it sounds like. Yeah, but they were definitely uh, smack on when they were thinking, okay, if these are all donors, don't they already like us? They've already shown <laughs> us that they like us, and that's true. Uh, the, the, the reason you want to do wealth screening for those donors is to find, you know, somebody's been giving you $100 a year for 10 years. Uh, you didn't know that they've made super large gifts to other organizations or they are a huge political donor, which is a strong indicator of ability and propensity to give. Um, they have two or three homes, um, one yeah. here, one on the coast, something like that. They they have an aircraft, they have a plane or a yacht. They sit on a foundation board. All these things will pop up in the wealth screening. And one of the more interesting ones here for us and some of our large um, executives here in, in the gaming industry is who owns more than 10% of the public stock in, the, in their <laughs> company? Uh, and those are all those wealth flags go up and you go, wow, I didn't know this person was in our midst. It sounds like, um, I mean, there's there's a whole lot of benefits from wealth screening as I'm I'm hearing you speak about this. So, so do you think? I mean, obviously, there's a cost to everything. So, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, at what point are they large enough, or is the database large enough to to go through with with a screening firm that can help them? Um, can you speak to any of that or, or some? things for, for our listeners to think about as it relates to that? I've had, um, I've worked with a lot of organizations on their, their research and their screening. And one of the questions, well, I always get this question, which search company or firm, you know, is the best? And part of my answer to that is it's the one you can afford because <laughs> there, there are some that are super expensive um, and really larger organizations with larger budgets are, are their uh, their clients, if you will. And uh, there are others that don't charge quite as much, um, but you kind of get what you pay for. But bottom line is, if you can do some screening, the, the thing that costs the most is big batch screening. You're, you, you have uh, 100,000 records and they're charging you six cents per record. It gets pretty pricey. Um, you can have annual subscriptions to some of these search firms where you can do one-off, you're in your database and you want to screen uh, one particular donor. You can have unlimited um, one-time screening. So I can look up Brad Stith, then five minutes later, I can look up Stacy Wedding and so on. Uh, It's the large batches that become really expensive. So even if you're small, there are firms out there that can help you with um, those search capabilities. That's really helpful to know. And I think uh, can maybe ease people's minds who are always looking, of course, at the budget like we like we all do in our worlds. Uh, and it it also I'm, I'm curious to know from a standpoint of what you've seen, Brad, 
Does it make sense if, let's say a donor gave to you, right? Hypothetically speaking, many years ago, I don't know, I'm just going to say five years ago, right? Um, but hasn't given again, and this leads to probably a much larger conversation of why, but, um, but I'm curious to know if there's sort of parameters or guidelines about who should be screened, if you're spending the money to screen somebody, does it make sense to do more recent donors who have shown a recent interest? Yes, it certainly does. You've, you've got, those are your better prospects, but um, I would include all the way back to five years. Um, okay. After that, you're pretty much treating them as a non-donor again, and they need to um, be cultivated um, uh, just like any other first-time donor would be, especially if you haven't had a lot of um, contact with them. Now, if you've had a lot of contact with them and they're, they've been involved in one way or another and they haven't given, then that's a different thing. Yeah, that, that makes, there's so many variables and, you know, every time you peel back another layer of the onion, I think you, you realize that none of this is quite just, oh, just do a don donor screen, right? Like there's, there's questions to ask, things to consider. Um, also, you know, I, I wish it were always just a super simple I idea, but, but it shows why people like you are needed <laughs> because people need, need, you know, some, some context and some guidance around all of this. Yeah, and organizations may want to prioritize their, their screening batches. And of course, the people that have given to you longest without a break are sometimes the, um, the, the best um, donors for playing gifts, people that um, have shown loyalty. Uh, and perhaps they, they, they're not the wealthiest person on the block, but uh, they can make a bequest to your organization. So there's a lot of different reasons. And I think that's the first thing you have to ask yourself before you enter into a, a screening uh, with a firm is, what am I trying to get out of this? Am I looking for major donors, um, the hidden gems amongst my, my donor database? Am I looking for uh, those individuals who can possibly consider a planned gift to my organization? And those are two different screens. Those are two different things you're looking for. You bring up a good question about what to ask the people, the wealth, you know, the wealth screening firms. Are there any other questions that should be asked when when a nonprofit is going through that interview process of who to select? Well, I think it's really important to find out um, what uh, integration they have. So by that, I mean, can I send you I can export from my donor database, my CRM, I can export that to the company. The company does its searches and they append that information that they find to those records and then it is uploaded right back into my, my CRM. So it's sort of seamless or whether or not you're gonna have two separate uh, records of that. You really wanna go with something that um, can integrate with whatever you're using. Uh, the other question to ask is, um, exactly what are you going to provide me? What are you looking for? What are your um, outcomes of this? Again, you want to be able to, for wealth screening, you want to be looking for their capacity and their propensity to give. Those are the two main things. So are they giving to other organizations like yours or are they giving large gifts to any other nonprofit organizations? And what are their, their holdings, real estate um, and otherwise? Um, and do they own large amounts of stock? Uh, the other thing that, that you'll find out, uh, you want to find out from them is, do you do um, a search that will reveal 
donors that are connected to what's commonly known as an inner circle for a nonprofit. So for example, they'll come up with, oh, we've got 10 people in that last batch that went through that have some connection with one or more of your board members. And you might not even know that connectivity. Um, so there's a connectivity um, aspect to some of these searches as well. That's super helpful. I hope everybody listening was writing those down and capturing those. So if, if you're in the process out now or in the future, you know what to ask. Uh, I will share just on a personal note, um, I am working with a client now who has really ramped up some of their expectations of board members around giving. And uh, we always know that can be a bit of a messy uh, transition for boards and right. uncomfortable transition. Uh, but one of the things they're they're embedding into their new process is having a wealth screening tool before they even go to recruit a new board member, which uh, shows that the level of priority that they're putting on this, obviously, I always encourage them to look beyond just the dollars because we know board board being a board member and a strong board member is more than just the money. But if that is critically important, they're doing some of those one-off searches you mentioned, Brad. So mm -hmm. it just goes to show how versatile some of this can be, um, whether you're doing a big batch or just a handful. Yeah, it's it's the bottom line on research is more information is better than less. And if you can afford to do it in one form or another, um, get all the information you, that you can. There are um, hospitals and medical centers that uh, use wealth screening on a daily basis simply to know who's in their facility at the moment um, that we may have overlooked. Uh, you have hundreds of beds, sometimes thousands of beds in these uh, medical centers. And every, every night the census is sent out to uh, a wealth screening firm. And by seven o'clock in the morning on uh, the DOD's desk is a list of the the hits, if you will, of high ability and high propensity don't, um, patients. So that's that's just another part of the searching. You have arts organizations that want to know who's sitting in those seats. And so after every performance, you've got the same type of thing, if they have uh, enough information on who purchased the tickets. So there's all sorts of different ways to look at this. Well. I, I get excited hearing about the potential for having more information to make informed decisions. So uh, I'm a bit of a nerd though. So self-proclaimed nerd around this stuff. So, uh, but, <laughs> but you're speaking my language, Brad. So um, I just want to thank you so much for giving your time, sharing your expertise with our listeners. I think I walked away, uh, I, I know I walked away learning a few few things about well screening and also knowing it doesn't have to just be large organizations. Uh, that was one thing that really resonated with me. I think many, um, many nonprofits are even less than a million dollars in revenue that they're bringing in a year, but they wonder if these tools are really just accessible to them if they are the hospitals or large you know, arts organizations. And it sounds like from what you're saying, not necessarily, especially if they do a little bit more of the kind of one-off select screening. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And I think that even the small organizations, you, you, there is an upfront initial investment every year to be a subscriber for this service, but you can do it and you can know who's in your midst. That's great. 
Any final thoughts or concluding remarks, Brad? No, just just find out as much as you can about the people that are connected with your organization and um, prioritize. That's what the research helps you do. You, you've got a million people in your database. How are you going to prioritize? This is it. You're going to find out who's in there and who rises to the top because you only have so many hours every week to go out there and cultivate and solicit. Oh, Andy, I know you're going to love this question. You know, when I start like that, <laughs> that you need to run for the hills. That seems to be my expression. <laughs> okay. I am relatively new in the ED position. I'm wondering if you have any tips for combating imposter syndrome and being comfortable in a role of authority. <laughs> oh, your laughter says it all right there. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> so now that I mean to be to be perfectly candid, like so I think this is something that I think the reason that we're laughing is because um I think sort of if you take sort of stereotypical gender, like this is how a particular gender has conversations about feelings, right? From yeah. a stereotypical standpoint, like Stacy's thinking that my opinion is going to be exactly what I first said, which is no, I've never heard of this. I've I clearly am a hundred percent in control of all the situations I'm in and and am very comfortable in the role of authority at a hundred percent of the time because like why wouldn't I be? Right. <laughs> but I think I mean I it's just I think the difference is that the the like you're you're less likely to see your I mean, obviously I am just like overgeneralizing to the nth degree is that in general you're going to see sort of your male colleagues are never going to say i have imposter syndrome they may have it inside they may be feeling it internally but it's not something they're ever going to say out loud because that you know that that would make them smaller <laughs> like why would they say that that would make them smaller <laughs> well i just and and for to give everybody a little bit of a, an inside peek to our world before we recorded this question, we were sort of bantering back and forth about it prior. And I just, I literally said to Andy, have you ever felt imposter syndrome? Because I don't think I know of one man, and I'm sorry, man, I'm not, I'm not knocking you. I just don't think I've ever heard of a man ever, ever even like remotely even hinting at imposter syndrome. I mean, and I, and yet it, it's like every day I could tell you, at least one conversation I had with a female in some kind of leadership position that is doubting herself or feeling like perhaps she doesn't. And it's not just a gender thing, but it's just interesting because I truly have this, like kind of have this belief that men don't feel this way. So I would love for any of any of our male listeners who deal with imposter syndrome, please come back and check me on that because I'm like, please let me know you're human and real. <laughs> I mean, I really just think it's like it's the external perception because I mean, honestly, you go into any any new role. So when I got the job as CFO of Three Square, I mean, that was a completely new job for me. I'd never been CFO anywhere. I'd never worked at a food bank before. Um, I had never done like inventory things like dealing with like tons and tons of products that are going to go out the door to be donated. It was a completely brand new world to me. And the first, th so I got the job, strangely enough, I got the job. And the first thing I did was like freak out and buy like 12 books on Amazon about like how to do the job I'd just been hired to do. 
So, so while I might not have said to peers, like, I don't deserve this role. Um, I don't think I'm capable of doing it. How did, how, how did I fool them into hiring me? Right. <laughs> Which is, I think, is that the definition of imposter yeah, syndrome? Yeah. Yep. So instead of doing that, like I clearly internalized it all and went, Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> I may be in over my head. Let's make sure I don't drown. <laughs> right. So I think it's just a matter of like, so, so mine is just like a growing permanent ulcer and and more um, blood pressure medicine than most people. Like, so, like maybe maybe that's sort of that internalizing of all of that stuff instead of like letting off the release valve. Talking about it. Yeah. Talking about it. Right. Right. Well, so now that we've talked, we've talked a bit about um, that it, it does exist in in everybody or or most people. Um, so, what do we think? Is do we have advice? Um, I, I have a tip or two, but I would love to hear yours. Do you have a tip or two for someone? Should they get 12 books from Amazon, Andy? I don't know. I mean, I think what, I mean, I obviously have, do not have any <laughs> relevant <laughs> opinion on this at all. I mean, it's like now that we've turned this into a gender studies podcast, um, <laughs> I, I really, so I think, yeah, I, I don't think my opinion is worth two cents on this. I think my opinion is completely valueless on this question. <laughs> so, well, so much for that. So sorry to the person who wrote in with it. Um, so yeah, I was like, we're we're a lot of help for you, aren't we? Um, okay. First of all, I do think though what we're saying, Andy, is a little bit of we need to normalize that this is normal to feel this way. Like yes. so, I right, and I think that's the first part of this because sometimes people think they are the only ones feeling this way or like that maybe they really aren't set out for it because they don't hear other people expressed doubt or concern or, you know, whatever. And so, so as a result, it feels like this huge, like thing that only they're dealing with. So I guess, I mean, the first thing I would want to do for the person that wrote in with this is that it is normal. People do experience it. People obviously experience it in different ways. Um, so the two pieces of advice that I will share that I just, um, one that, um, I think is great for someone in a nonprofit is that when you can get yourself out of your own, out of focusing on yourself and your feelings. So like actually getting into the work, like touching the mission, feeling the mission, like mission work. Like if you have the opportunity in your nonprofit to get connected to the work, it's amazing how all this other, I'm going to just call it crap, like fades away, right? This mental stuff, you get really reinvigorated and just like, it, it takes your mind off yourself and, and moves it toward the larger purpose of the organization. So I think anytime we can do that when we're facing something like this is one strategy to sort of at least relieve it. Um, and the other thing is that's a really concrete tool that I have learned through many years of different coaching and different mastermind groups is sort of we have the power to change our own mindset. So figuring out when you're aware that that thought is coming in your head, what can you replace it with? And I'm not talking going from like super negative, oh God, why do I have this job? Like they were silly to hire me to I'm wonderful and amazing and I, you know, kick butt every day. I'm not talking like that extreme thing, but like how can you sort of like replace that one cent, like that one set of mental narrative with something new that's like, you know, I've 
faced new things before and I've gotten through it and here I am today. Like something that neutralizes it, like doesn't put all of the, just the, the energy that kind of, it's like something that turns into like a huge, it's like, it starts as a snowball. And the next thing you know, it's an avalanche with your thoughts. You want to kind of nip it in the bud, right? When it's at the snowball stage, right? And sort of redirect those thoughts to something that is more of a neutral statement and something that's kind of factual, like, hey, you know, I, whatever, like replace X with, the, you know, something else that feels a little bit more like I've accomplished, I've accomplished, you know, new things before and I've set foot in new things before. And yeah, there's nerves at the beginning, but guess what? I'm smart and I'll figure out my way through it. Like whatever that is for you, but like sort of trying to redirect because it's like, it's that kind of that, that thing that we feed it when we keep feeding the thought, it just gets worse. And it it's, I also think like, you know, another thing, and I just am throwing this in there is if you have like a group of really close colleagues or friends, or even like they've got, there's some groups that are like, I know there's one in Southern Nevada that's kind of a Southern Nevada executive directors group um, and that tends to be female executive directors and they get together regularly. And one of the things they do is support each other a lot about like through not only just kind of the ins and outs and technical pieces of their jobs, but also things like this that everyone faces. So if you have sort of a trusted small group of people too that you can just be open and share this stuff with it it helps a ton so there's my three strategies what do you think about those andy i think those are great and i think I, I i especially like that you brought it back to the sort of mental health aspect of it as well because you're right that can be incredibly destructive that 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 feeling that you're not you're not worth the role that you've been placed into or that you're incapable of doing it and that that puts you into some sort of spiral where it's very difficult to get out of. I think that's a really important thing to remember. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, you have to sort of like name it and claim it, right? It's like, I'm feeling like this. And now that I've said it out loud, now that I've said it, it's, it's okay to not feel like it anymore, right? It's like, I've, I've got to, I've got to acknowledge that this is something that's happening and I know that it's happening. And so I'm going to be aware of that feeling. So it doesn't sneak up on me. And then the other thing you said, which was, I think, I think, um, like really critical. And I, you know, after you said it, I'm like, well, yeah, I did that was one of the things I did. Like once I, after I started at three square. So one of the things about cool things about being in a position of authority is that you're now in a position of authority. Like you are now just by virtue of whatever role you've been placed in, given that to sort of use that, you can use that currency elsewhere. So as CFO of three square, one of the first things I did was so the Smith center kind of came online. And the one of the first things I did when the Smith center came online was call Rick Johnson, who was the CFO of the, the first CFO of the Smith center. I said, Hey Rick, I'm Andy. I'm the CFO at three square at the food bank. Like, would you like to go get lunch? Like, welcome, welcome to town. I'd love to go have lunch with you. And like in the back of my mind, I'm like, maybe he's going to tell me how to do my job. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can get some secret tips on like the, and, and in those kinds of conversations, you absolutely do. You have somebody that you've now had lunch with that you've had a conversation with. And if you're not, if you're not a horrible person, you know, super self-centered person and you're actually engaging and listening, like then, then they're willing to answer questions. If you have, you know, stuff like, Hey, I've been trying to figure this out. I wonder if you have an idea on it. And then, and then you're right. Those, so those professional networks of other people that are in the same role as you and other places, a lot of times they are willing to talk, you know, they're willing to say, here's what I found that works for me, or this is the resource that I use to help me with this thing. And sort of making that network of people that you now, because you're 
because you're an ED, because you're a CFO, because you're in this new role that you don't think you deserve, like use that to connect with the other people that are already in that role because now you can't. Now it's totally legitimate legitimate to be, you know, CFO to CFO or ED to ED or something like that, or board member to board member. You know, you've got that, you've got that calling card now. We've reached the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Thanks for joining us. Stacy and I really appreciate that you take the time to listen to the podcast. Um, we're always delighted when we check out um, how many listeners that we have and see that it's a large number. And that makes us so happy to see that uh, that this is useful because we figured if it wasn't useful, the number would get smaller and smaller and smaller, but it's not, it's actually getting bigger. And we really, that makes us really happy. So it tells us we're doing good stuff, but if there's stuff we could do better, if there are questions you want answered, if you have comments on the format, comments on the music, comments on the audio editing, comments on anything at all, send that to us or send us your questions. And we um, are so excited to get those and really happy to see them and, and really geek out on doing all the research, to try to figure out what the answers are, or if we can't figure it out, finding a guest expert that can. So thanks again for joining us. We will see you in a couple of weeks.